in August of 2013, a public zoo in the third largest province in China was temporarily shut down due to an unusual problem. Visitors discovered that the zoo's lion was actually a dog posing as a lion. According to a report in the Beijing newspaper, the fraud came to light when a mother and her young son visited the zoo and the animal uh, labeled an African lion started barking. The outraged mother said, the zoo is absolutely cheating us. I paid good money for these tickets and I feel defrauded. They're trying to disguise dogs as lions. Zookeepers admitted that the so-called lion was actually a Tibetan mastiff, a large dog with a furry brown coat. They also admitted that other zoo animals had been mislabeled. Apparently, there was a white fox in a leopard's den and another dog being passed off as a wolf. And Staff also swapped out two snakes at the reptile house with two giant sea cucumbers. The chief of the park's animal department claimed uh, they really did have a lion, but it was away at a breeding facility. The dog belonged to an employee that was put there for safety reasons, they said. A spokesman for the zoo said, we're doing our best in tough economic times. Well, this kind of thing happens all the time, doesn't it? Now, it doesn't happen at zoos all the time, but it happens all the time in our lives. You know, people often say one thing, they present the story in one way, they present the facts in one situation, when in reality, it is something totally different. Buy this great used car. I mean, it's perfect, right? With one owner, his grandmother was in the, you know, garage and the whole nine yards. Buy this used car. You drive it home and it's, it's not so great. The commercial says that this new diet, this is the best diet that someone has ever thought of. Nah, not very great at all. Buy the latest gadget, right, for your home, this latest electronic, this latest thing that you need for for your house to work right. You buy the gadget, and a week later, it's in the trash because it's broke. Invest in this hot, can't-miss stock, and it misses completely, and you lose all your money. Or someone says, I know what God wants for you. I know what God wants to do in your life, when in reality, all he knows is what He wants from you. See, the old way of describing people who did things like this, people who manipulated people for their own gain, was to call them snake oil salesmen. Remember that? Wikipedia describes it this way. Snake oil is an expression that originally referred to fraudulent health products or unproven medicine, but has come to refer to any product with questionable or unverified quality or benefit. By extension, a snake oil salesman who's someone who knowingly sells fraudulent goods or who is himself a fraud, a quack, a charlatan or the like. You see, false teachers are snake oil salesmen. They're knowingly misrepresenting God and his word for their own gain, for their own power. They're a fraud, a sham, a charlatan. Paul uses some really strong words in our passage this morning to help us to not give in the false teachers. So turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
We'll read just a few verses, starting at verse 3. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, it says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Father, we come to you this morning now with these words ringing in our ear, your words, the words from your Holy Spirit to us. So teach us here and challenge us. Give us new insight and deepen our commitment and our walk with you because it's about you and your word and your spirit in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to look at five characteristics of a false teacher. The first one's obvious, right? They teach a different doctrine. Paul, in kind of a simple summary statement, at the end of verse 2 says, teach and urge these things. All of these important instructions about healthy church relationships that we've gone over for the last several weeks, Timothy is supposed to teach and urged to his congregation. Remember, Paul stated in his letter in 1 Timothy 3.15 that his goal was to direct Timothy on how one ought to behave in the household of God. So we saw in chapter 5, Paul's teaching about how in the church, how we should honor older men and encourage younger men as brothers and older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. The church is a family. We should treat each other with such love and respect and care. Then he goes on to talk about how the church and how one specific family is supposed to care for widows. God cares about widows and widowers and those most alone and vulnerable in our society. And he says the household of God, the church, is supposed to reflect his heart and care for them. Then Paul instructs Timothy about how a church is supposed to honor and care for elders in the church. Then he talks about how Christian workers are supposed to treat their non-Christian boss, or their Christian boss. Paul is helping Timothy here to lead the church at Ephesus into spiritual maturity, into mutual ministry, into unity. Paul is helping Timothy to teach sound doctrine that agrees with the words of Jesus and accords with godliness that will bring health and vibrancy to the church. Sound doctrine will help the church to truly minister to its people and for the church to stay on mission for Jesus Christ, going into the world and making disciples. At the very heart, at the very center of any church is its doctrine. What we believe determines how we behave. What we hold to be true defines how we act. Sound doctrine that agrees with the words of Jesus, that brings about Real godliness is the most important aspect of any church, of our church. One of the real problems at Ephesus, and one of the main reasons Paul sent this letter to Timothy was that there were false teachers, there was false teaching happening in this church. Erroneous doctrine had crept into the church. Remember the very first topic of the letter to Timothy, after, right after the greeting, uh, was 
when Paul was charging Timothy to deal with the people in the church who were teaching a different doctrine. 1 Timothy 1.3 says, And I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge, you may command certain persons to not teach any different doctrine. The urging, pressing issue in a church was dealing with false teaching. Now as Paul is nearing the end of his letter and having just urged Timothy to teach the congregation, to urge them in sound doctrine, Paul's thoughts go back again for a second time in this very brief letter to the urgent, pressing issue in the church of dealing with false teachers. See, false teaching is a big deal. Having sound and correct doctrine and teaching is a big deal. It's the most important aspect of any church, and Paul is unrelenting on the issue. Verse 3 in in, uh, chapter 6 is essentially a definition of what constitutes a false teacher. What is a false teacher? A false teacher is anyone who teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. False teaching is teaching that doesn't agree with Jesus, doesn't agree with Jesus' words, and doesn't result in a life of true godliness. We regularly see churches in the New Testament being challenged by, being infiltrated by false teachers. Now, false teachers is an issue for all ages and all generations. But, folks, we have something. We have something that the first churches did not have. See, we have the most ultimate evaluative tool that the early church did not have. They didn't have a completed New Testament Bible in their hands. Why? Because it was being written then, right? God often used the very struggles of the early church as the impetus for the apostles to write letters to the churches, which in turn became our New Testament. The first century church struggled with sound doctrine because they didn't have the tool, the inerrant, inspired Word of God compiled together in a New Testament. Their struggles became letters, which became our Bible, which then gave us the tool to avoid their struggles. This is so important, folks. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit carried along the writers of the Bible, so what they produced wasn't the will of men, but were the very words of God to us. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every one of us in this room should know those two Bible passages. We should know those Bible passages because they set the bedrock of the truth of our scriptures. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. The Holy Spirit made the Bible self-authenticating. And the Holy Spirit preserved the Bible so that we could have it today. You have in your lap right now one of the great miracles of God. A gift 
from God the Holy Spirit that is given to you so that you can know God, so that you could know sound doctrine, so that you could know the very words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have the tool. We have the single most evaluative instrument for deciding what is sound doctrine and what is not sound doctrine. It is the miraculous, inspired, and errant word of God. Beloved, my words are nothing. God's word is everything. Great sermons on the radio, I love to hear them. But they're nothing. The power, the conviction, the enlightenment never comes from men's word. Only as it reflects God's word is their power and influence. We have it. Remember the song as a kid? Remember it? The B-I-B-L-E? Okay, you ready this morning? You ready to sing it with me? Let's go. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. You ready? Bible. Isn't that a great, those simple words, that simple song. Listen to what we just said. The Bible's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The scripture is the breathed out words of God to us. The very sustenance of our souls is fed by the word of God. We're really good at feeding our bodies. At least I am. We're really good at making sure that our bodies are well fed. How are we doing in feeding our souls? If your body only got as much food as your soul did, how hungry would your body be? What kind of health would your body be in if you fed it the same way that you fed your soul? Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We have the truth, folks. And it's the truth of God's word that examines our lives, that examines our teaching, and in which our soul finds its satisfaction. The word of God is our standard, the rule that we measure everything by. And that leads us to our second point. False teachers are more focused on themselves than the word. Instead of teaching sound doctrine that agrees with the words of Jesus and brings about true godliness, the beginning of verse 4 says, they handle God's word with arrogance. One commentator said, the false teachers first characteristic is conceit. His first aim is self-display. His desire is not to display Christ, but to display himself. There are still preachers and teachers who are more concerned to gain a following for themselves than for Jesus Christ. They're more concerned to press their own views upon people than they are to bring men to the word of God. See, false teachers think that they know more about godliness than what the Word of God says. False teachers think that they know more about what's right or wrong than what the Word of God says. False teachers think that they know more about what you should believe than what the Word of God says. False teachers think that they stand above the Bible and evaluate it rather than the Bible standing above them and evaluating them. 
Paul says of these false teachers that though they claim in their pride to have superior knowledge and insight, they actually understand nothing, he says. In Jesus' earthly ministry, he regularly ran into problems with the Pharisees because of these kind of similar issues. In Matthew 15, we see just such an occurrence. Matthew 15, verse 1 and following says, The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your own traditions? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother surely must die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your traditions, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, the Pharisees were upset that the the disciples were breaking their rules. They were eating without washing their hands. They were breaking these rules that the that the Pharisees had set up. The Pharisees had come up with hundreds and hundreds of rules for the people to follow, saying to the people, follow our rules. If you follow our rules, then you're following God. If you follow what we tell you to do, that's how you get to godliness. Jesus so powerfully says to the Pharisees that they were actually breaking the commandment of God for the sake of their own rules, and their own traditions, teaching their own rules above God's teaching. They gave more authority for their own words than they did for God's word. See, false teachers often claim an authority over the Bible. False teachers often claim an exclusive understanding of the Bible. False teachers often say, follow me and what I teach at the heart of of their false teaching is an arrogant attitude towards God's word. At the heart of a true teacher, at the heart of every true follower of Christ, there needs to be a humility to God's word, a willingness to be under the authority of God's word. One of my most beloved seminary professors passionately held out his Bible one day in class And said, if you ever come up with a new teaching, if you ever come up with a new doctrine in the Bible, you are wrong. And he was right. Folks, the Bible has been studied for 2,000 years by multiple tens of thousands of men and women. If someone stands up and says, I have a new revelation from God. I have a new doctrine of God. I have new authoritative teaching from God. Folks, that's the time to politely leave and to never go back. Now, I'm learning new things all the time. We all are. They're all, we're learning new things. I'm, I'm sure that you, too, are learning new things from God all the time. They're new to us. But they're not new to Christianity. It is through our humility to God's word. It is through putting ourselves under the authority of God's word. It is through acknowledging the Bible as the rule and the standard of our faith and practice that we actually grow. 
living our lives in agreement with the words of Jesus and in accord with true godliness. Humility to God's word is one of the keys to opening up a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Another characteristic of false teachers is that they crave controversy rather than unity. At the end of verse 4, it says that false teachers have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. 1 Timothy 1.4 says that they devote themselves to myths and speculations. One commentator described the false teaching this way, controversies and arguments, questions and strife over words have impaired their mental health to such a degree that they become diseased. Having a morbid craving for arguments properly catches the true meaning of that phrase in the Greek. This is a noteworthy example of the process by which intellectual wrangling so often ends in moral deterioration. Have you ever been around people who just like to argue? Have you ever been around people who just like to argue every point, every word? Now, because we are men and women of the book, and because the book is necessarily made up of words, there is this tendency, there is this trap teachers can fall into, creating controversy and quarrels over words. Sometimes to defend sound doctrine, we must be strong about the words and their specific meanings. That is not at all what this passage is talking about. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about an unhealthy craving of creating needless controversies and quarrelings over insignificant minutiae. False teachers create controversy as a way of control and manipulation. They're not really so much concerned about the argument as they are concerned about winning the argument. They're not so much concerned about unity, but making people follow their way. They use their so-called vast intellectual knowledge and extraordinary insight into God's Word as a weapon to get what they want. Then verse 4 lists five outcomes of such quarrelsome, you know, Focus on minutia, false teachers. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. See, false teachers not only destroy churches with their false teaching, but just as much they destroy churches through what their false teaching produces. Many churches have been thrown into crisis by needless controversies that breed envy that breeds dissension and slander, that breeds evil suspicions and constant friction. This very thing happened very recently to a close pastor friend of mine. A new person had come to their church and and quickly wanted to become a member. But then soon after becoming a member, started causing issues, started causing friction because he had a superior attitude. He knew Greek and Hebrew better than his pastor, and he literally started quarreling with him over words. He had an unhealthy craving for the taking of insignificant minutia and making it a matter of huge importance. And of course, he alone had the correct understanding and insight. So in this very small church, that what began as an encouraging happening with this man attending and becoming a member quickly turned into a tumultuous situation, 
creating strife and conflict. Those are some really hard days for that pastor, for that church, for the leadership of that church. But to the praise and the glory of God, the church, the pastor, the deacons, the leadership, they dealt with the issue both biblically and forthrightly. They preserved the unity of their church and supported their pastor. You see, an unhealthy craving for controversy over insignificant minutia only creates division, discouragement, constant friction. This was a real problem in Ephesus in the first century. And this was a real problem in my friend's church in the 21st century. You see, God's word is relevant and powerful to our laws. May I say it again to all of us. Humility to God's word is the key. It's the antidote to false teaching. The next characteristic of a false teacher is that they deceive the deceivable. Verse 5 says that false teachers cause all of these types of problems, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant frictions, in people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. You know what that verse is telling me? That verse is telling me that the best way to stave off false teaching is to be a person with a sound spiritual mind and to be a person that's full of the truth. See, smart people can fall victim to false teachers because the protection against false teaching isn't human wisdom, but spiritual discernment. 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. For the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, spiritually discerning followers of Christ are taught by the Spirit. And the Spirit's primary way of teaching Christ's followers is through the very Word of God that He has provided for us. To be a mature, spiritually discerning Christian, to have a spiritually sound mind, to be full of the truth is to be taught by the Spirit through His Word. The great protection against error is to know the truth. You know, a new, highly efficient system is being used by San Francisco and New York City to detect the presence of toxins in a city's water supply, to protect the water supply from a possible sign of terrorist attack. They have found that the best tool for monitoring such threats are bluegills. You heard me right. Bluegills. You know those little fish that you catch on a lazy uh, afternoon? According to an article by the Associated Press, a small number of bluegills are kept in a tank at the bottom of the city's water treatment plant because they're highly attuned to chemical imbalances in their environment. When the disturbance is present in the water, the bluegills react against it. If the, com- if the computerized system of the treatment plant detects even the slightest change in the bluegills' vital signs, they send out an email alert. Bill Lawler, the co-founder of the corporation that makes and sells these bluegills monitoring systems, says, Nature's given us pretty much the most powerful and most reliable early warning center 
out there. Well, folks, God has given us the most powerful and the most reliable early warning center out there. It's His Word. We have to know it. Ephesians 1.18 says that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened by God's revelation. We have to know the truth. Jesus in His prayer in John 17 prays for the disciples saying, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. God's Word is truth. It's the truth, God's Word, that sanctifies us, that sets us apart from sin, that sets us apart to God for His use. It is knowing it and living the truth that protects us. It's the early warning system that protects us from the wiles of false teachers. Next, Paul mentions their motivation. uh, Their ambition is greed, focusing on earthly pursuits. What so often is behind all of this? What's behind these false teachers? Greed. Greed and power. Verse 5 says that they imagine that their fake godliness is a means to gain. Their fake godliness is for their own selfishness. One commentator said false teachers commercialize religion. He's out for profit. He looks at his teaching and preaching not as a vocation, but as a career. One thing is certain. There is no place for careerists in the ministry of any church. The pastorals are quite clear that the laborer is worthy of his hire, but the motive of his work must be public service and not private gain. His passion is not to get, but to spend and to be spent in the service of Jesus Christ and for his fellow man. God makes it clear in the qualifications of being a church leader that in 1 Timothy 3.3, that elders are not to be lovers of money. In 1 Timothy 3.8, that deacons are not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Jesus himself says it so clearly in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, our Jesus said, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, folks, this isn't just true for church leaders. It's true for all of us. We're going to be looking at that reality. If you peek ahead at the next verses uh, in chapter 6, you're going to be see how we apply this truth to all of us. So church isn't about the latest fads. Preaching isn't about, you know, making the congregation laugh or cry. Biblical teaching isn't based on the power of the presenter. No, church is about the eternal word of God. Preaching is about the Spirit using the eternal word of God to change us. Biblical teaching is about the Spirit illuminating the the eternal word of God in our hearts and in our minds. May we all bow in humility and our hearts and minds to the authority of God's word in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we say right now as one voice, as one church, that we bow in humility and our hearts and mind under the authority of your word. We willingly do that. It is actually our joy to do that. It is the privilege of our lives to be able to do that, to come under the protection and the, the wisdom 
the, the insight, the, the joy that it brings, the freedom that we get in Christ through the authority, through coming under the authority and humility of your word. Lord, we pray for each of us and each of our lives that we would bring your word to nurture our soul, that our souls, would, as it hunger and thirst for righteousness, we would feed it with your word. Lord, challenge us and change us today. In Jesus' name, amen.